Well, good morning, Christ Chapel. Wonderful to see hello to all of you joining us at all of our venues and those of you joining us uh, online from wherever you are. Great to see you. Would you all take a copy of the scriptures and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 6 through 11. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. If you're opening one of those blue Bibles in any venue, it's page 909, that blue Bible that's probably under your seat uh, somewhere. And as you turn there, I want to tell you about the very first class that I ever took in seminary. Uh, It was called Bible Study Methods. And really uh, what they're teaching you there is how to study the Bible. Okay, and there's really three crucial steps to that, observation, interpretation, and application, which are all very, very different. And so, obviously, you start off with observation, just observing the text. And the very first assignment that you get in Bible study methods, I was able to take it with uh, Howard Hendricks, who is a legendary professor at DTS, uh, is now with the Lord. But um, the very first assignment that you get involves Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which we're going to be covering today. And the first assignment that we were given, I'm a brand new student here, and he said, please go home and I want you to come up with 25 observations from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. 25 observations. Just what can you observe from that one particular verse? I found it impossible to do that assignment. But I went home and tried to do what I could do the very best that I could. And I was amazed. I actually think I came up with something like 25 observations. I don't know if they are exactly observations, but I came up with 25 different things from that one verse. And I was so proud of myself. As our friend Jonathan Murphy would say, I was chuffed. I was so excited. I was super excited to go and I uh, go to class to turn in my assignment. I turn it in and get to class and he goes, wonderful, it looks like you all turned in your assignment. 25 observations on Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Now here's your assignment for next week. Come up with 25 more observations from Acts chapter 1 verse 8. So I had to go back and find 25 more different things. I actually think he ended up assigning a 75, but I don't want to embellish. Uh, But I know there was at least 50. That was a while ago in my life. Now, I tell you that story to tell you, there is so much to cover from these particular verses. And I'm not going to walk you through the 50 observations that I came up with from Acts chapter 1 verse 8, but I want to narrow the focus to something that I think applies to all of us, and that is your particular purpose in life. I know you say, Cody, that's a really broad subject. It is a very broad subject, but it has an incredible impact on our day-to-day living. If you talk to mental health professionals today, one of the things that they are seeing is that people lack purpose. They just don't know their place in this world. They don't know what they should be doing on a daily basis. And those folks who lack purpose in their lives or or don't know their place can struggle with things like anxiety, depression, isolation, and certainly even worse. And so it's important to understand what your purpose is, not only because you have one, but also because purposes are very easily misunderstood. 
Uh, first, let me say that your purpose is not your vocation. Yes, I understand that that fulfills a purpose in your life of putting food on the table, but that is not your particular purpose. Uh, the second thing I'd say about that in misunderstanding is uh, your passion is not necessarily your purpose. Uh, people love to look for their passion and pursue their passion. That can certainly be a calling, but a passion uh, involves your feelings that come and go. Your purpose can transcend your passion. Your purpose can certainly have a part of your passion in it, but your purpose is bigger than that. You see, we've got to understand what our God-given purpose is, and here's why. Because until you understand what your God-given purpose is and begin to live it out, you will never experience the power of God in your life as he intends. And that's what we're going to look at today from these few verses at the very beginning of Acts. So uh, obviously you need uh, your, your Bibles open, but you also need a copy of the sermon notes. So please make sure you have those out because there will probably be some things that I, I think I'm going to say here that will not come up on the sermon, uh, that won't come up on the screens that you'll need. And we're obviously continuing our series, uh, Empowered by the Holy Spirit, and we're picking up right where we left off. If you remember, where we left off in 1 to 5 is this unique 40-day period, this unique 40-day period where the resurrected Jesus is meeting with his disciples. And I introduced a different term to you that's used here for those disciples, which is apostle. Remember, disciple means learner. Apostle means sent one, one who is sent. And I'm going to use those synonymously today because I want you to understand this applies to you as his disciple. And so he's meeting with his disciples as the resurrected Jesus, this 40-day period. And remember, 40 days uh, represents this idea of preparation and transition. So he's preparing them during this unique time period because there's about to be a transition, which we're going to look at today. And during this 40-day period, verse 3 tells us that he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. And then verses 4 and 5 tells us that he, he's telling them that you need to wait for the Holy Spirit. And so today, where we're going to pick up is in that conversation. We're going to continue that conversation and hear what he said to them. But what I want you to see here is why Jesus is preparing them. I'm going to explain to you why he's preparing them, explain to you what the plan is that he's laying out for them. But then I want to explain how that applies to your life. But I want to do it in a little bit different way than we typically do uh, in the sermons, at least, that, that I get to preach. And so uh, hopefully uh, the Holy Spirit has been working in your heart this week as I've been praying for you uh, so that you would have ears to hear what he is saying regarding your purpose in your particular life. So we're going to pick up here in verse 6 where I want you to see that Jesus shared his plan which required his disciples' empowerment. Jesus is going to share his plan, which required his disciples' empowerment. So look at verses 6 through 9. It says, so when they had come together, this is the disciples and Jesus, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, 
It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. We're going to stop right there because there's plenty to unpack just from these few verses. So in verse 6, we pick up right where we left off. Remember, I told you in verse 3, they're talking about the kingdom of God. Jesus is trying to adjust their expectations while he's connecting some dots for them and dispelling doubt, which is everything that we talked about last week. But he's talking about the kingdom of God. And then in verse 6, what do they begin asking him about? The kingdom of God. Now, if you were with us in our series on Matthew, he's been teaching them that the kingdom of God is not what they would expect. It was something totally different. Then in this 40-day period, he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. Now they ask him again, is today the day? Is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom of God? And then Jesus ascends. I've chuckled all week because I imagine that Jesus ascended because he's tired of being asked this question. (laughs) You know, it's like I promised Hayes, our younger son, a Dr. Pepper milkshake from Whataburger. They're back now. And uh, and he's like, Dad, is today the day we're going to get it? And I was like, Hayes, we don't have time today. Are you sure, Dad? Maybe today we could go by at this time. Finally, I'm like, I'm out of here. I'm walking out. Like, I had to leave the room. You know, I've chuckled all week that Jesus is dealing with these disciples. I'm like, is today the day? Is now the time? And he's like, I'm out. I'm done. But he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. And let me, I know we've talked about how the kingdom of God meant, they they expected it in a political sense, which is absolutely true. But let me explain some more of their expectations. And these are Old Testament expectations. They're right to ask these questions. They're not completely off base because I think it's going to help explain Jesus' plan that he lays out here for them. Because yes, they were hoping for and expecting a political kingdom where God's person, God's man would rule and reign and bring peace and prosperity to the, the Israelite people. But they also expected that this kingdom would be ethnically restricted, that it was only for the Jews, that nobody else outside of the Jewish nation would benefit from this kingdom. They would all be enemies of the state. So they were expecting an ethnically restricted kingdom, and they were expecting a geographically restricted kingdom. That this would be established in Jerusalem, and this is the only place where the king would sit and rule and reign, and that's it. So all of these things were very narrow-minded, very narrow-focused. But the plan that Jesus lays out for them blows their mind. It it is way broader in scope than the things that they expected. He he says that his kingdom is going to expand through Judea. It's going to start in Jerusalem. It's going to go to Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. Now, I want to show you what that means and what, what they were looking at. So Jerusalem, obviously where that red dot is, Judea is the, the circle around Jerusalem that, that is a region, and Samaria is the broader region of that area. And so what he tells them is, this kingdom is going to expand, this message is going to expand through Judea, 
through Samaria, well beyond Jerusalem, even to the ends of the earth. And when he says ends of the earth, what he's talking about there is the known world. That's how they would have expected it. And who is in charge of the world at this time? Rome. Rome is, is, so he's expecting it to go all the way to Rome. Now, spoiler alert, because I think this is super cool. We actually see this happen all in the book of Acts. That we see this power that he talks about being spread through Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, starting in Jerusalem where they are now. In fact, the literary outline of Acts follows that geography. And one to seven is in Jerusalem. Uh, Seven to 12, I believe, is Judea, Samaria, and 13 to 28 carries us all the way to Rome. So this expands beyond this geographically restricted idea that the disciples had. But how is it going to expand? Well, he tells them. He says, it's going to expand because you will be my witnesses. Now, now witness is exactly what you would probably think of it to mean. Uh, It it means what you apply it and and hear it in context today of somebody who gives a testimony if you are called to witness in court. You are called to tell what you've seen and heard. You're called to give it. And that has a very negative connotation, but this could also have a positive connotation. What have you seen and what have you heard? Uh, I'm sure by six degrees of separation, you're close to someone who went to the Fiesta Bowl where TCU beat Michigan, right? If you are close to anyone that has been to that game, you've heard about it multiple times. Am I correct? Yes. They're just telling you what they saw and what they heard. They're just testifying to the wondrous work done through the frogs. That, that's all they're doing. They, they didn't make it up. They were kind of a part of that, but they, they weren't on the field. They're just telling you what they saw and what they heard, this wondrous thing. So see, being a witness can, can have a, a positive, it can be in a positive context or it can be in a negative context. But that's all it, this means is telling what you've seen and what you've heard. But the interesting thing is the word that is used here for witness is actually the word that we get our English word, martyr. That, that's the word witness there. Now, obviously, if I told you that so-and-so was a martyr, the, the definition that you would apply and what you would think is they died for their faith. And as soon as I tell you that, all of you say, I'm out. I don't, I don't want to be a witness for Jesus. I don't, I don't want to die in order to tell of what I've seen and heard of him. Well, here's one thing that I want to remind you, is that if you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ, then you've already died. If you look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul tells us, I have been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, for those of you who call yourselves Christians or Christ followers, who've placed your trust in him, the only way that you have the new life that you experience in Christ is because you have died. Your old self is dead, which is, I think, really encouraging because all the things that we are scared to to die to, whether it's our reputation or our friendships or we think we're going to commit career suicide by by just telling what Jesus has done in our lives we say I'm already dead (laughs) I've already I've already died any new life that I now have I live by faith in the son of God and doing what he has called me to do and what he has called me to do is be his witness to tell of what I've seen him do in my life and what I've heard him do in other people's lives and throughout scripture. That is what I am called to do. Yes, that means you're a martyr. Yes, that means that when you are able to tell of him, you've already died to yourself, but he has raised you in order to be his witness. But obviously this takes some supernatural power, and that's exactly what he tells them that he gives them. If you look back at verse uh, 8, he says, but you will receive power. And we'll come to that in uh, a couple of weeks where we're going to see this uh, happen. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And notice that this precedes being his witness. That, That power from the Holy Spirit enables you to tell of what Jesus has done and tell of the things that you've seen him do in your own life. This power, that word that is used there, you may have heard this before, it's where we get our English word dynamite. That, that's the word for power here, a dunamis. And this power that he's talking about is not only a capability, but it's capacity, meaning you will be equipped to be able to be his witness to the extent that you're called to be his witness in every circumstance because you will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. He will equip and empower you in every way necessary to be his witness in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. That's what he has called you and me to do. That's his plan. His plan to extend the kingdom beyond the geography of Jerusalem, to extend his rule and reign to the ends of the earth that is not ethnically restricted just to the Jews, but to Gentiles like myself, is for other people to be his witnesses by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is his plan. And for some of us, that scares us to death. I, I, I I don't know how to do that, and I don't, that's very uncomfortable to do. I want to I say two quick things about what being his witnesses is not. Okay, let me just say that very quickly. When Jesus says that his disciples are going to be his witnesses, I want you to notice that he doesn't say, you are to be my converters. It is not your job, Christian, to convert anybody to Christ. That, does that... 
<laughs> provide a deep breath for anybody, a sigh of relief. It, it's, that is not your job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Not, not your responsibility. You see, sometimes as Christians, I think we take on responsibility that does not belong to us. You are not called to convert anybody. You're certainly not called to convict anybody. You're certainly not called to condemn anyone. Nor do we need any Christians walking around being, you know, code compliance police, you know. Your job as witnesses is to tell of what you've seen Jesus do in your own life. That is your job. You do your job and let him do his job. Now, if you find that part difficult, I take you back first to Galatians 2.20, but also sometimes that's difficult because we're not that close to Jesus. We're not close enough to to see him so that we can tell of him. And we try to tell stories like our old friends from high school tell stories about us. You have, have you ever had a, a friend do that? And we're like, man, remember that time when? And you're like, that was 25 years ago. Like, I'm a different person. I, if you're going to fairly represent me or be accurate, then spend time with me today. Then you'll get a better picture of who I am. You'll be able to tell people who Cody really is. You know, sometimes in order to be his witnesses, we've got to be close to him on a daily basis to fairly represent who he is and what he's done in our own lives. So first, I want you to understand you're not the the converter. Second, the other thing that I want you to understand is it's not the church's job to be a witness. I've confused some of you. It is every Christian's job to be a witness. And here's why that's very important for you is because I know that there are friends, loved ones, neighbors that you have that you are praying for that they come to know Christ. And I love it. I've, I've just heard of two stories this past week of people coming to know Christ. Uh, and I'm so thrilled. Um, and there are people that you want to come to know Christ and you, you want them to hear those things about the power of Jesus from me. And certainly I want to tell them of that. But let me tell you, they're going to believe you far more than they're going to believe me. You're the one that they trust. You're the one that they spend time with. You're the one that they have a relationship with. And honestly, sometimes because of the name tag I wear, they distrust me even more than they uh, even more than is valid, really, or, or more than they should. They're not going to listen to me. They're going to listen to you. But that's okay because you are going to be empowered to be his witness. That's his plan. That's his plan so that other people would come to know him, so that the good news would spread through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And it's important to understand that they're empowered to do this. The first, because... These are uneducated people. In a religious sense, they have no pedigree whatsoever. They don't have seminary education. Remember, these are fishermen, tax collectors, normal people that have normal vocations through the highways and byways of life whom Jesus chose to send the Holy Spirit to indwell their lives so that they could be his witnesses. 
So if you are feeling underqualified, you're in good company. That, that is exactly who he has chosen to use. But it's also important to understand that he empowered them because he's about to leave them. If you look back at verse 9, verse 9, it says, And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Poof, he's gone. Wait, we were sitting around waiting for Jesus to do everything. Now Jesus is gone. What are we supposed to do? You're supposed to wait for the Holy Spirit to empower you. This is where Jesus ascends. And we only get one verse uh, on this, although Luke talks about it at the end of his gospel as well. But we only get one clear picture of the ascension. So I want to teach you about it just very, very quickly. Because if we don't cover it here, then we don't cover it uh, the rest of the book of Acts. And so I want to just walk through some things. And these are on your sermon notes so that you understand what the ascension Means. So first, I want you to understand that Jesus ascended to heaven gradually, bodily, and visibly. visibly. This is going to come up at the, at the end of the passage we're studying. But Jesus ascended the same way he will descend in his second coming. We covered that in Matthew chapter 25, or 24 and 25, if you want to go back to that. So, but he ascends in a way that they can see it happening. And I think that's super important because remember how we talked about the 40-day time of transition? They get to see the transition happen. Like he's taken up, which think about it the other way. If Jesus just stopped showing up so regularly, what do you think they would have done? They would have just kept waiting around. And like, well, he was here last Tuesday. Maybe he'll show up this Tuesday. You know, maybe, well, we're just going to wait around for him, guys. Let's not get over anxious and try to change the world. You know, he, he might come back here. We don't want to miss him. We don't, he won't know where we are. We'll stay right here, safe and secure from all alarm. But instead, he visibly ascends to mark a definitive time where, hey, guys, I am gone and I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, and now it's in your hands. Go for it. Second thing is Jesus ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father. I don't have time to go through all these verses that I've given you, um, so you'll have to go back and look at them yourselves, but these are wonderfully rich. Um, but this is sitting at the right hand is a seat of authority, a seat of honor, and also showing that he has equal status with God the Father. Okay, he ascended to intercede for his followers he now is our advocate and intercessor, always saying, I've got that one. He, she is mine. I've, got, I've covered that sin. I've paid for that one. Always interceding for you. Uh, Jesus ascended to send the helper and the comforter and the guide and the Holy Spirit. He talks a lot about this in John chapter 14 all the way through a 16 where he teaches a lot on the Holy Spirit, about this helper that is going to be sent. And we love talking about the Holy Spirit as the comforter and the guide, but have you ever thought about what, why does he call him a helper? I'm gonna connect these dots for you, I promise. But why does he call, what is he helping us to do? Is he helping me to get a better SAT score? 
Is he helping me to get a better mortgage rate? Why does he call him the helper that he's going to send them? I think he answers that question in John chapter 15, and this will come up for you. This is on your screen. Uh, This will be on the screens. In John chapter 15, it says, But when the helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will do what? Bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So what is the Holy Spirit sent to us to help us do? Bear witness. Thank you. Amen. I'm amening you. Amen. To bear witness about who Jesus is and what he's done. That's what he's there to help us to do. You see, in my life personally, if I'm completely honest, so many times, selfishly, I want help with everything but that. God, help me with this, help me with this, help me with this, but I never ask for help with that because I don't want to do that. But that's why he is in my life, is to help me bear witness to Christ. And that's why he sent them to the disciples at that time, as we'll see in Acts chapter 2. You see, the disciples' empowerment would propel them to be his witnesses. That, that's why. To share of the good news of Jesus. If you look at verses 10 and 11, after Jesus ascends into heaven, it says, And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And we know, just fun fact, from the end of the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus ascended from Bethany, essentially the Mount of Olives, and from Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, it tells us that where Jesus will descend, his second coming, he will come back to the Mount of Olives, same place he ascended from. So what these guys are telling him, which I think are angels, what the angels are telling him here, he's going to come down the same way that he went up, back to even the same place to establish his kingdom as he promised his disciples. But, I've taken it aside, back to this. They're gazing into heaven going, what happened? And now these men show up and they go, why are you gazing into heaven? Or another way to say it, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Go back to Jerusalem. That's what he told you to do. Go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to empower you to be his witnesses. And this wasn't just uh, for them to apply to be his witnesses. This is for us because this needs to happen until Jesus returns again. You see, I'm going to come back all the way back to the big idea that I introduced at the beginning. And if there's one thing I want you to understand, it's this, that Jesus has given you his power for his purpose. Jesus has given you his power for his purpose. As I just confessed to you, I want Jesus's power in my life for so many other reasons except to be his witness. I want it to be at peace. 
I don't want to be anxious. I don't want to be sad. I don't want to be in harm. I don't want to be in danger. I want to be secure. I want to have loving relationships. Help me with all those things, God. And we all want those things. And I'm not saying that those are bad things to want. But the reason why he gives, those are all byproducts. The reason why he's given us the Holy Spirit is, yes, those things will happen. But it's to tell other people about who he is and what he's done in our lives. So I want to ask you some of these introspective questions. And the reason why these introspective questions are very important is because if you're not fulfilling his purpose, then you can't expect his power. So let me ask you this. What would you say that your purpose in life is? What would you say your purpose is? What is your intention or what is your objective? What is it that gets you up out, out of bed? And you say, the alarm. I, yeah, I got you. You know, or work. I, I get it. But if your purpose in life is just tied to your job or career achievement or respect by peers or admiration from your friends, I'm telling you, that might get you out of bed for a while, but it'll leave you wanting uh, at night. You're just... It doesn't translate. And those, we have so many very successful folks that, that are around us, and you talk to them, and I'm telling you, that is not the end. It's not the end. It's your, your, your role, your career, whatever that is, that is a means to an end. It's a way to connect with people in your spheres of influence so that you can be his witnesses. So what would you say that your purpose is? Second, what would others say your purpose is? I think this is a really important question because if he says that he sends the Holy Spirit to us so that we can be his witnesses, who are we witnessing to? Certainly, we don't need to witness one another to those that already know Jesus so what would those outside of these walls, wherever you are, what would they say your purpose is? Would they say your purpose is, man, I just want to make Jesus known through my words and through my life in every way possible. That if, if other people would answer that question positively, awesome, praise God. And then third, is his power having his purposeful effect in your life? Is his power having his purposeful effect in your life? This is something I personally have to daily align my heart back to, to, to say, God, your purpose in my life is not just for those things that are right in front of me, but it's bigger. And if, if my life doesn't have a bigger purpose where I need to depend upon the Holy Spirit, then I'm selling God short. There's something bigger, some way that I have to depend upon him, and it's to be his witnesses. That, that's what my purpose is, and that's what your purpose is. And if your life isn't having that purpose of bearing witness through your words and through your deeds of who Jesus is and how good God has been to you, then his power 
is not having its full purposeful effect in your everyday life. That's what we've got to yield ourselves to. That's what we've got to say, God, my life is open to you to, to be a stage on which to project your glory to those around me. That's the whole reason why he sent his spirit, and it's the whole way that the church expanded. And it's the way that we will see those 800,000 reached in our own backyard. Will you pray with me? God, we admit, I admit, that when I talk about being a witness, sometimes it's scary to think about how to talk about those things, how to bring up those topics. But Lord God, I know that you will present those opportunities if we make ourselves available to you. And so Lord God, would you, in in your wisdom, provide those opportunities because we already know that you've provided the power of the Holy Spirit to work in and through us. So Lord God, we are yours. May we be your conduits through which you can work in and amongst our friends, our neighbors, and our loved ones. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.